So I think tonight's talk is about boredom, but it might meander off into tangents at some point. Tangents of um, ordinariness and humility. So as I mentioned in another talk, when I was young, my father would take us camping a lot. And one time he took us to the Boundary Waters in Minnesota, more than one time, but one time I'm remembering. Um, As I said, I grew up in Minneapolis. So he took me and my brothers and sisters up there. And um, my dad liked to challenge us. He liked to uh, push us to do more than we thought we could do. And so on this occasion, he taught us about using a map and a compass to navigate in the, in the woods, in the wilderness. The Boundary Waters, for those of you who know it, there are no dwellings, no roads. It's, it's wilderness. And so uh, one day he, he sets me and my brother and my sister. I was like 11 or 12. My sister was like 12 or 13. He set us with a task to get from our campsite to this lake a few miles away and he said I'll go around in the canoe and I'll meet you at the lake and you guys go through the woods and um, and get to that lake so he sent the three of us off so we're using the compass and the map and um, at one point we see him on a lake and we're like oh yeah we did it great so we're pretty excited and um, it turns out that he was only on the way there and that we were actually off and he's like, nope, you didn't do it. Uh, here, go out again, and I'll meet you at the, at the lake. And um, so we, we, we made it to the lake. Um, you know, his parenting might be questioned by some. <laughs> by, by some. He, he was a little unconventional. Um, but I really appreciated everything I learned from my dad. He, he taught me um, that I could navigate in the wilderness. And I feel like in some ways when I came here on my first retreat, that, that, that was really helpful. Because what happens on a retreat is we're navigating the wilderness. The wilderness of our heart, body, and mind. And the confidence that I built from that there were other things like uh, soloing a glider when I was 14. And um, really, really, that when I cried when I finished, when I got back down to the ground. <laughs> but, but he taught me to have confidence in myself and that I could do more than I thought I could do. And that's what we're learning here, right? We're, we're navigating the wilderness, and we're learning that we can do more than we thought that we could do. And we have some tools that we use that help us navigate. And yet we're each out there, right, doing it, kind of on our own. We have support, but we have to call forth our inner resources to help us with this navigation. So uh, tonight I'd like to start talking about a wilderness that most of us don't want to go near, and that's the wilderness of boredom. Boredom's kind of anathema in um, 
Western culture, especially American culture, it's like that's the last thing in the world we want to be is bored. Or ordinariness, oh, not interested. <laughs> Sometimes a retreat, it reminds me of um, a British show that was on um, cable TV many years ago. I don't think people even have cable TV anymore. Um, and the, the show was called Watching Paint to Dry. And they would paint a wall um, every 24 hours, and you could watch it dry. <laughs> or, or here's another thing that might be another uh, close analogy. So many years ago, I came across um, on the web the dullest blog in the world by Dave Walker. Some pencils, oh, tidying some pencils, March 16, 2006. Some pencils were scattered around my desk. I picked them up one by one. I placed the pencils in the drawer that I used to store pencils. <laughs> Opening a cupboard door, October 16, 2005. There was a cupboard in the corner of the room. I reached out my hand and gripped the door knobble. Nor handle. I pulled the door towards me, thereby opening the cupboard. Scratching my knee, September 10, 2004. My knee had a slight itch. I reached out my hand and scratched the knee. <laughs> the knee in question. <laughs> All right, enough of this. <laughs> So a big part of practice is learning to connect with what's ordinary, right? Like cupboard doors and uh, itches on our knee. And this doesn't come so easy to us. I think our minds remind me a little bit of those Japanese, um, those little speedy Japanese motorcycles. You know, the ones that zip around. They, they go by my house sometimes really loud and zippy. And... Um, you know, our minds and hearts are kind of zippy a lot of the time. So coming down to the level of boredom and um, ordinariness is, is asking a lot. And yet there's something about being able to do this that's actually a doorway into freedom. And it's a doorway into connecting deeply with the present moment because most of life is pretty ordinary. Okay, at the risk of making you laugh too much again, this is um, about John Cage. You know John Cage, the avant-garde composer. And he was a big fan of Buddhism, I think, or connected to Buddhism. He goes, I gave a performance of my piece called Empty Words Part 4 for the students at Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado. It's a Buddhist university. The piece goes on for two and a half hours and contains long silences of four or five minutes duration. And then out of that silence, I just say a few letters of the alphabet following a score that was written through chance operations from the journal of Henry David Thoreau. Meanwhile, there are these very faint images of Thoreau's drawings being projected on a screen behind me. 
but they are very dim and hardly change at all, perhaps once every 20 minutes. I thought it was an ideal piece for a Buddhist audience, but they became absolutely furious and yelled at me and tried to get me to stop the performance. (laughs) The next morning, they asked me to join the faculty at Naropa. So I think about that piece because I was like, what What was going on? Why were they so furious? I think maybe they were bored. So let's look a little more at boredom. What is it? It's often a mix of mind states. Maybe there's a pulling back or disengagement, a giving up low energy, disinterest, lack of mindfulness, aversion, wanting, shutting down. All of these can be part of boredom. Maybe it's a sign that our agendas aren't working, that things are not living up to our expectations. It tends to include some restlessness, Some wanting, maybe a multiple hindrance attack at the same time. So we read the bulletin board again. We read the bathroom signs again. (laughs) Anything that might be a little bit stimulating, right? Let's go a little deeper. How can we connect with boredom? So the garden variety boredom is that we're just not interested. We're not engaged with what's happening. And the question might be, why? Are there skillful means to adjust, right? So maybe it's just low energy. We all have times of the day when the energy is lower, it's harder to connect. Sometimes we can just wait it out. Boredom, just wait it out. Just keep going with a kind of light attention until the energy returns. Part of meditation is knowing how to manage low energy, right? How to keep meditating at those times when when we don't have as much energy. Or we might raise energy. We find we're bored. We might raise energy by uh, walking faster, walking outside, maybe some caffeine, standing up, adding noting, connecting with something pleasant, something to raise our energy. So we might see if it happens at the same time every day that we get bored. And maybe that's an energy drop, and we can take some steps to raise our energy. Or maybe we organize our day so that um, when the energy's low, We're doing things that are more active. For example, as a meditator, for many years in my practice, after 6 p.m., I was worthless. I just didn't have any energy. I didn't need more sleep. I was getting enough sleep. I just didn't have energy at that time. So I would do my yogi job in the evening, take my shower in the evening, do all the things I needed to do in the evening when I didn't have energy. Sometimes boredom is a lack of interest. It's a kind of um, preemptive giving up on the moment. 
boredom already knows what this moment has to offer, and it's nothing new. This moment has nothing to offer me. I've been there. I know that. I've done the breath. I've done a step. (laughs) Perhaps it's neutral, right? We talked about this with the Vedana talk, how neutral, um, with the neutral conditioning, we kind of space out. Then we get bored. What we start to see as we investigate boredom that it's not so much the object that's boring or the event that's boring, though we think it is, that really it's the quality of heart and mind that are boring. It's the quality of heart and mind that we bring to it. And so it's often a sign that we need closer attention. We need to raise our interest level. So how do we do that? I have several suggestions. One, we can um, move closer. So bring closer attention, move closer to what's happening. A number of years ago, when I used to ride my bike on and walk on the roads near my house, I noticed that on the side of the road there were wildflowers, but they were weeds. Mostly I just noticed weeds. And then at one point, my husband gave me a wildflower identification book. So I started looking closer, and it was amazing how many different flowers that were there and um, you know how they went through the season, different flowers. And I had never noticed it because I didn't move close enough. I didn't pay close enough attention. But once my attention became closer, it became interesting wasn't just boring weeds. And uh, we can do that also with our, with our mindfulness practice, with our mindfulness objects. Move closer. What's really going on here? Another way is to ask a question to raise curiosity and bring us closer to the experience. So sometimes um, we drop in questions, not to think about them, but to raise energy and interest. Questions such as, what is this? How does it change? Is clinging present? What's the attitude of mind? So we drop in the question, and then we look towards the experience. And that question can just add a flavor of of interest to what's happening. Another way is we can try to see each moment fresh. We can practice fresh step, our first step, first breath, last breath. How would it be to look at it as if we'd never looked at it before? Because we actually haven't. <laughs> it's, it's new every moment. It's, it's a conceptualization that makes it old. We practice defamiliarization. So we practice looking at things as if we don't know what they are. 
So in the conceptual realm, it's always the same. It's a breath, right? But when we move closer and don't assume we know what a breath is, then it's interesting. We don't box in the world with our assumed knowing. I love, especially when I'm in nature, looking at things as, as though I've never seen them before, right? Like a tree, looking at a tree, I've never seen a tree before. I mean, right now, just saying that, I think of how amazing a tree is if I've never seen a tree before. Or looking into the, to the middle of a tulip. Again, we've talked about this before, how concepts dull the mind. Seeing things fresh brings in this energy. Paul Reps, a Zen teacher, has a short poem about this. Grass blade experiencing. This is the law. No sames. No same leaves. Pebbles, persons, places, times, faces, grasses. Whoever disobeys the law gets bored. Charlotte Joko Beck, as I've mentioned, she's a Zen teacher that um, I like quite a bit. And here's a little story that might be helpful for us. So she um, says that she was a piano major at Oberlin Conservatory. I was a very good student, not not outstanding, but very good. And I very much wanted to study with one teacher who was undoubtedly the best. He'd take ordinary students and turn them into fabulous pianists. Finally, I got my chance to study with the teacher. When I went in for my lesson, I found that he taught with two pianos. He didn't even say hello. He just sat down at his piano and played five notes, and then he said, you do it. And I was supposed to play it just the way he played it. I played it, and he said, no. He played it again, and I played it again. Again, he said, no. Well, we had an hour of that. (laughs) And each time, he said, no. In the next three months, I played about three measures, perhaps half a minute of music. Now, I had thought I was pretty good. I'd played soloist with little symphony orchestras. Yet we did this for three months, and I cried most of those three months. He had all the marks of a real teacher, that tremendous drive and determination to make the students see. That's why he was so good. And at the end of three months, one day he said, good. So if you think your meditation's bad. (laughs) He was trying to teach her to listen. And sometimes I... 
I think of mindfulness this way, I think of meditation this way, is we're trying to learn to listen. We're trying to learn to listen to our bodies, listen to our hearts, something other than the endless chatter of our minds, right? So it's a different kind of being that we're even trying to learn. How can I really listen to this life as it's manifesting moment by moment? And it takes incredible patience. Think of the patience, three months of that. It takes incredible patience. It was a three-month retreat <laughs> to, um, to learn this listening. Another way we can raise interest is to get interested in boredom itself. It's a mind state. What's it like to be bored? Let yourself be thoroughly bored. How do we experience that in the body, in the mind? What's our relationship to it? How does it change as we're with it? What kind of ideas maybe do we have? What kind of beliefs do we have that are influencing our relationship? Maybe the belief that we're a bad meditator if we're bored. Or maybe the fear that we might die of boredom. We may skip over mindfulness of boredom as we try to get rid of it and react to it rather than connect with it as our present time experience. One um, Tibetan tradition talks about hot and cool boredom. Hot boredom is boredom that has an experience of subtle or maybe not so subtle aversion or attachment. So perhaps we're experiencing that boredom is actually an experience of aversion, that we don't like what's happening, that we're pulling away from what's happening, that we're dulling out to what's happening, that maybe we don't really want to be here. One retreat I watched in a single breath how many times I wanted to fall asleep. <laughs> Not be here. It was actually quite interesting. So we can ask if we notice that maybe the boredom has this flavor of aversion, what's wrong with the present moment? And many of you know that that, uh, boredom can also be a kind of withdrawal symptom from high stimulation. Most of you, well, we've all been here a while, so maybe we've gotten through detox. Um, But we shouldn't underestimate what we're coming from. from such a high-paced world, right? So we're used to high-paced. We're used to fast-paced. They actually did a study, and they found that pedestrians walk 10% faster than they used to. Speeding up. (laughs) 
I found a website by accident when I was doing some research. It's called Time Euler, and it enthusiastically explains time blocking. It's a, their, their thing is time blocking, blocking out your whole day. Time blocking forces you to fill up free time with pre-commitments and a plan of action. Doing so prevents you from wasting precious time on a task that could be finished quicker. There is no room for random interruptions. There are no blocks of time left unscheduled. I have trouble breathing when I read that. (laughs) But they're enthusiastic about this. I thought it was like maybe a a satire. (laughs) But it's actually a service they're trying to sell. Then I saw this... um, documentary on the Comey reindeer herders of the Siberian tundra. And they measure time very differently. The flow of their lives comes from the seasons of the year. Two migrations a year for humans and reindeer from the forest to the mountains and back. And that's how they measure time. Now I can breathe a little bit. So here we're, we're learning, right, a different relationship to time. There is a kind of timelessness of, of, of retreat. Accustoming ourselves to living that way. Have you noticed, though, how on retreat you can still be busy? Kind of that leaning into, you know that, right? That leaning into energy. It's a great mindfulness spell. I use it in my life. When I see that I'm leaning into, it's like, oh, 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 here, now, this. I read that in the 1860s in Paris, This is a true story, apparently. Well, I think so. I think it's a true story. It was fashionable to take turtles out for a walk. (laughs) That's what we're doing here. We're moving down to that pace. One time, a number of years ago, I was going to, um, Thich Nhat Hanh was doing a retreat Few few hours from my house, and on the last day, people from the outside could come in and take the precepts with um, with Thai and his community, Thich Nhat Hanh and his community. So I had to get up pretty early, and um, so I got up, I drove my car, you know, hurrying. So I get to the site. It's just a few minutes before it's supposed to start, and I'm rushing up the hill from the parking lot, and then I see Thich Nhat Hanh walking um, to the tent from the other direction. And I'd never seen anybody walk like that before. He was completely present for each step. There was absolute, you could just see it, he embodied this absolute beingness in the moment. There was no, there was no nothing, no urge outside of that moment. He stopped me, you know, I stopped in my tracks and I just watched him. And that was my big um, teaching of the day was to watch him walk.
So we're learning how to live like that. Live with full presence in this moment without needing to get somewhere else. So one type of hot boredom is aversion, then the other type is craving. We want something else. We don't want what we have. And so we're boredom seems to be the surface, but underneath it's craving. We're waiting for something more interesting to happen. It's a kind of um, impatience. One teacher described boredom as walking down the aisles of a supermarket And there are thousands of items, and yet we insist on one particular item that they don't have. (laughs) So perhaps we're surrounded by abundance, and yet we feel starved because we want what isn't here. Maybe our lives are actually abundant. Maybe there's enough. So with this kind of hot boredom, we miss life waiting for something else to be happening. Our life is made of pretty ordinary moments. Where do we draw the line between what is worthy of our attention and what is not? We practice this... um, full worthiness, that each moment is worthy of our attention, that each moment is enough, that we can relax and settle into this moment just as it is. And yet, we may have to risk producing absolutely nothing. And that's a big risk, isn't it? We start meditation hoping that we're going to improve ourselves or really that we will become special and that people will notice. (laughs) But if we do meditation properly, there's no way to avoid seeing how very, very human we are. Pablo Doris said that his Zen teacher said, he said, his Zen teacher, quote, makes it clear that I'm not yet who I truly am, but rather still someone too cunning and unnecessarily complex. We're still someone too cunning and unnecessarily complex. We're not yet who we truly are. We're hoping for dramatic things to happen that will make us feel special. And yet the direction of this practice is towards humility, humanness, authenticity, nothing special. And if we do want to become special, well, we get disillusioned quite regularly. Sawaki Roshi said, 
No matter how many years you sit doing zazen or meditation, you will never become anything special. Isn't that fantastic? (laughs) (laughs) Trying to be special is so much work. It's endless. As I was doing this talk, I was thinking being an influencer must be a horrible job because you have to be special every day. Maybe we can give up the project of being special. Maybe we can relax. Many of you may be evaluating your retreat at this point, trying to see if it's measured up to your wishes and expectations. (laughs) Have you become special yet? Did something special happen? I want to make it clear that there are places in our lives where it makes some sense to try to excel, especially if we're in the middle of our careers, for example. So I'm not saying that we should never try to excel. But on the spiritual path, it gets in the way. Having that pressure moment to moment is too great a burden to carry. Many Enlightenment poems describe a moment of ordinariness. And yes, there is lots of uh, effort before, but there's this sense of um, nothing special happening. One of my favorites is uh, the Enlightenment poem of Patachara from the, the poems of the early nuns. She says, When they plowed their fields and sow seeds... When they care for their wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. But I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bath water spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked the bed, and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. So ordinary. So so boredom or ordinariness, not much happening, might bring up the fear that we don't have... Um, that we're useless if we, if we don't have something to show, if we don't produce. <laughs> There's a yoga journal cover I saw a few years ago. It said, being versus doing. Here's how to slow down without getting off the fast track. So we want to we want to slow down and we want to stay on the fast track, right, and get something. <laughs> a number of years ago, um, during a retreat, it was clear that it wasn't helpful for me to keep doing the the intensive schedule, sit walk sit walk, which I loved. <laughs> I was very attached to. And um, my teacher said, you know, you got to sit less. It's it, to be balanced. You need to sit less. And um, 
I didn't listen to her because <laughs> I wanted to keep sitting and walking and, you know, produce something, right? Be a good yogi. And uh, finally, at one point, she's like, look, you can do one formal sitting a day and that's it. I'm like, what am I going to do all day? And she said, well, you'll have to figure that out, but um, you can do useless gazing. And... Um, <laughs> Useless gazing was, was sitting in a chair with a cup of tea and looking out the window. So that, this was bad news to me. I was um, quite worried. <laughs> I, I, you know, it was like I was attached to the form that I was doing, and, um, and, I was, and I was really a good yogi, and I was attached to looking like a good yogi. And um, so I spent a, like the first week of, the, of that instructions, week to 10 days, and it was like going through this burn, burning fire. Like I, I felt like if I didn't produce something, I was worthless, that I didn't deserve to live on this planet if I didn't like produce, have something to show. And she hadn't given me much to hang anything on to. Um, but then when I got to the other side of that, I had one of the best retreats I'd ever had. One of the deepest retreats I'd ever had. Hmm. I saw that I'd made my meditation a project, that I was doing something. And I stopped. And on the other side of that, there's, how do you describe it? Hmm. On the other side of that, there's no separation from life. It's like all our efforts to get something, it's like we're messing, we mess with everything. We put me into everything. And then the ability to truly connect is, is distorted by me. And when we take away the me, when we take away the having to produce something, there's just relationship, there's just connection, there's just interconnectedness. Somebody asked about this, there was a question in the basket about this, I'm answering it now. (laughs) there's There's just life. So, what if we give up worrying about whether we have a finished product to show? Try it for the next 10 days. You've tried self-judgment, you've tried comparing, you've tried assessment, you've tried striving, you've tried all of that. (laughs) Every time you notice that you're like, what did I get out of this, or what can I still get out of this, Um, just note it, give it a name. Maybe just ordinary. I had a mantra I used for a while. I'm completely ordinary. I loved it. It's like letting go of the project of me, right? (laughs) 
So those are, that's hot boredom, right? Wanting something or not wanting something. And then cool boredom is described as pleasant. And we wouldn't even really call it boredom, probably. It's more like disenchantment. Kind of, we break the spell, that special experience will do it. It's more like contentment. Boredom can be close to contentment, actually. It's a resting, relaxing, trusting. It's on the other side of all of our doing. Trusting that it's enough. The Buddha said that contentment is the greatest abundance, the greatest wealth. Freed from wanting, from scarcity, from, from not wanting, from stinginess, from holding on. We can rest. So disenchantment, not lost in the illusion that there's some special experience that's going to solve all of our problem, that's going to make us happy. And it's not detachment. That's, that's, that's something else. It's, uh, it's disenchantment. It's, I mean, there's some disappointment sometimes on the road to disenchantment because we had so hoped that some special experience would do it. But it's closer to equanimity or cool boredom. And we're able to rest into and engage with the full uh, spectrum of life. Like I said, we don't... We don't um, We leave things alone. And then we find that when we leave things alone, they're right there to meet us. And there's this sense of um, belonging, connection, life, whether it's with rocks or trees or people. Things get to be just as they are and not a reflection of what we want from them. And in that space, there's, there's meeting. So there's another John Cage um, piece that I talk about sometimes that some of you know. It's 4 minutes and 33 seconds. That's the name of it, 4 minutes and 33 seconds. And um, in this this piece that he composed, um, nothing happens. So the audience is there, the whoever's there, the orchestra, whoever, the pianist, whoever, and nothing happens for four minutes and 33 seconds. And the concert is all the ambient sounds that pass through. So the, the cough of somebody in the audience, the siren outside in the street, the rustling and shifting of the people um, 
in an interview with John Cage, um, I think that John didn't say this, somebody else did. We observe that four minutes and 33 seconds is always itself, and it's always wide open to everything. This apparent paradox is actually the piece's perfection. And John Cage says, when it is our, when our intentions go down to zero, suddenly you notice that the world is magical. That's what I mean when I say we leave things alone and then the magic of the world comes to meet us. So in this um, space of cool boredom grows the beautiful quality of humility. And it's a term that you don't hear a lot, at least directly in Buddhism, but it's related to mana. It's related to not-self. If the word humility doesn't work for you, maybe humbleness. It's a quality of great depth and great freedom. We might think that humility means being less than, but it actually means stepping out of the whole paradigm of comparing of needing to be special, of needing to be someone. That's its great freedom. And we're freed from this pressure to be extraordinary and released into ordinariness. Humility rests on a sense of total adequacy. So that's what we're, 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 we're moving towards. And it recognizes that the spiritual path is a long road and that constantly measuring our progress is fruitless and bound to lead to suffering. The task really is to just keep walking. Put one foot in front of the other. And what we need to do is learn to love the journey itself rather than some perfection that we're going to attain, something uh, special. Rumi said, make the road home, home. I think maybe it's not always shared at the beginning of the spiritual path how long and arduous it is. We're hoping for instant meditation, right? Not insight. We don't want insight. We want instant meditation. It's said that in the early years here that a letter did come addressed to the instant meditation society. (laughs) (laughs) But you all know that's not how it is. The Dalai Lama said, you Westerners, you always want, you know, things so fast. Perhaps a little change every decade is enough. (laughs) Speaking of humility, right? The Dalai Lama is such a great um, example. My teacher Michelle said to me once, practice is designed to make us humble. If you aren't being humbled, what are you doing here? This was when I had said to her, I feel like such a beginner. I'm still understanding what mindfulness is. She said, good, that shows that you're doing it right. 
This was after three decades of practice. Make the road home, home. Maybe full enlightenment has the quality of a deep sense of trust in life manifesting and a deep kind of authenticity. Humility, authenticity, right? Neighbors. (laughs) No posturing. No mana. With the more enlightened beings that I've met, they just are who they are. There's no sense that they're trying to posture for you that they really even care what you think, though, though they connect. There's a, this kind of authenticity that can't uh, be faked. Greg may have told this story about Happy Monk, but one time he um, asked Happy Monk to tell him about Donna. And he said that um, Happy Monk started throwing oranges at him. He took all the oranges out of the bowl. And he says, Donna, this is Donna. Everything here is Donna. (laughs) It's all been given to me. (laughs) Some of them are outrageous. But they are themselves. They all have a different flavor, but it's authentic. There's another monk there that we love that we call Angel Sayadaw. His energy is like an angel. He would never throw oranges. <laughs> it, it, it's it's a sweet, angelic en- energy. Deepama, um, who was here in my first retreat in 1984, they, they, there's a story of them taking her to the Boston Aquarium once, and um, she was blessing all the fish. Like that's what Deepama was like. She just liked to bless. She blessed jet airplanes. She blessed fish. She blessed people. No posturing, just authenticity. That was where her heart expressed itself. Rio Khan, the poems of Rio Khan, what I love about them is the humility and the authenticity. The um, Ryokan, the hermit poet from uh, Japan from the 1800s, no, 1700s. Here's one. Today's begging is finished. At the crossroads, I wander by the side of the Buddhist shrine talking with some children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. We can feel the freedom, right? We love it. The wide open mind. No resistance to who and what we are. So practice helps us settle more deeply in the truth of our own unique lives. In addition to the truth of the human condition, kind of the intersection of the human condition in our own unique lives. And we learn to come back over and over again to our experience and we learn to trust it. 
That's authenticity. What's happening right now? What is the truth right now in this moment? And in this quieting process, we see that life as it is, changing, flowing, not personal, mysterious, and undefinable, is full of spacious freedom. John Cage also wrote another composition called As Slow as Possible. And it um, will take 639 years to play the piece. (laughs) I'll finish with another poem by Rio Khan. My hut lies in the middle of the dense forest. Every year the green ivy grows longer. No news of the affairs of men. Only the occasional song of a woodcutter. The sun shines and I mend my robe. When the moon comes out, I read Buddhist poetry. I have nothing to report, my friends. If you want to find the meaning, stop chasing after so many things. sit for a minute. I have nothing to report, my friends. If you want to find the meaning, stop chasing after so many things. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.